Al Jazeera podcast. As Russia recovers from what it calls Wagner's rebellion, there's a new focus on private armies. They're used in many conflicts around the world. But how much of a threat are they to the global order, and can they be stopped? I'm Sahil Rahman, and you're listening to the Inside Story podcast, where we dissect, analyze, and help define major global stories. Let's bring in our guests now in Honolulu, Hawaii. Sean Fate, a former military contractor and author of The Modern Mercenary. In Copenhagen, Sorka McLeod, a member of the UN Working Group on the Use of Mercenaries. And in Washington, D.C., John Lechner, a Wagner Group expert with focus on conflict in Africa. A warm welcome to all of uh, our guests on Inside Story. A lot of uh, bases to, to hit on this particular programme. Let's just begin with the fact, uh, Sean, if I can come to you first in Honolulu. Um, recent events seem to show that mercenaries uh, can be more dangerous uh, and more lethal militarily and politically uh, than one might imagine. Bit of a wake-up call, really, isn't it, to world leaders? It is. I mean, it certainly shows the risks of relying on private force to do your bidding, especially a mass like the Wagner Group. But we can't forget that you know, mercenaries are the second oldest profession. They're very hard to control. Uh, they can be very fickle. What we saw over the past weekend is is not new in history. Mm. So I think uh, the, the problem also is, is that world leaders up to this point have generally seen mercenaries as cheap Hollywood villains. And that's not true. They are very dangerous. John Lechner, can I get your uh, opinion on this? Because as Sean just mentioned, historically, I mean, we could go back to what William uh, the Conqueror in the 11th century, you know, using hired swords to combat and, uh, and make conquest of England, really, uh, and start, you might say, the British monarchy. Uh, there's a whole list here as well, from, from Syria to, to Italy, to even the Pope uh, using mercenaries. What's your general opinion of what we've seen over the last sort of 48 hours? And it's a continuing story, isn't it, about what's going on in, and dare I say it, outside of Russia? Yeah, I, I mean, first, I would agree with uh, Sean McFate that uh, the, the use of mercenaries and, and their role in conflict is nothing new. And really, it's only been in the past 200 years or so that uh, we've seen uh, the development of national standing armies. And I think, as Mr. McFate has pointed out in his own book, uh, the, the world is beginning to revert and change again to the uh, privatization of uh, security uh, in warfare. Um, I think specifically what it means uh, for governance, uh, especially within Russia at the moment, is uh, yes, mercenary groups are in, uh, both can both work for the state, but are driven by by profit, uh, and they can be an incredibly useful tool, but a, a dangerous tool at the same time uh, if they're not satisfied uh, with a particular outcome. Uh, Sorka, we'll talk about the sort of legality of what's going on globally in a moment. But in terms of mercenaries, it's a fickle business, isn't it, really? Pay the right price, you buy the right men and guns, they're yours. But it'll come back to bite you in the posterior uh, if you haven't paid enough. And this is what seems to be developing or has been a historical scenario for quite some time. Well, I think what what we what we've seen at the at the weekend is the the consequences of the unregulated 
um, uh, privatization of the, the the use of force and 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 you know Machiavelli wrote many centuries ago that that mercenaries are are dangerous they're they're unreliable you can't you can't trust them and I think that's that's very much what we're you know what we've what we've seen here but you know over and above that they are hugely problematic for civilian populations. The um, you know that's not to say that other armed forces or non other armed non state actors are not not dangerous as well, mm. but when mercenaries are involved in an armed conflict, what we see is that the levels of violence against civilian populations rises substantially. They prolong the the conflict. You know, we've seen um, with their involvement in Libya how they you know they they've undermined the the, the peace peace process and they they destabilize whole whole regions. Uh, Sean, can I just come in there? You were not sort of shaking your head there. Is there something you want to say? Yeah, I, I would also say that history also shows that you know mercenaries can be deeply dishonest, but so can their clients. I mean, the, the popes who hired mercenary armies were infamous for not paying them. When I worked in Africa, nobody wanted to work, well, this is not against Africa, but nobody wanted to work with the UN because nobody didn't think they'd get paid. So it's not just mercenaries ripping off their clients, it's also clients ripping off their mercenaries. But I agree with Sorka, there's a, there's a saying in Africa that when the elephants fight, the grass gets trampled, and civilians are the grass. And this is an element of private warfare uh, that's, a, that's deeply problematic. Okay, I want to come back just to John Lackler, just a little bit more focus on uh, Russia and what's going on there before we move on to the much wider picture. I mean, Prigozhin, uh, Prigozhin now, uh, where does he stand right now? He's perhaps on his way uh, to uh, Belarus. Does he have any leverage? Does Wagner have any leverage now with Moscow? And what is the state of play with those mercenaries of his, of his company? Sure. Um, I mean, there's uh, to, to say anything with certainty right now, I think uh, we need to have a, a degree of humility as we try to kind of predict where Prigozhin is sitting at the moment. Uh, we don't know if he's in Belarus uh, at the moment. Um, one of the things that I have been looking for is whether or not we, we would see any shakeup uh, within the Ministry of Defense uh, with uh, figures such as Shoigu or Gerasimov. Uh, as these were Prigozhin's main rivals uh, within the Russian government and essentially the, the figures that he was trying to oust. Um, and uh, thus far, we saw Shoigu receive a medal, so it, it, seems like, uh, it seems like he is not going anywhere. And so essentially the question now uh, remains whether or not uh, Prigozhin himself is able to retain control over the group. Um, I think you know, at the end of the day, uh, regardless of uh, a change in management, uh, that their Wagner over the course of several years has built significant infrastructure uh, in Africa, and uh, not only physical infrastructure, but something I think is even more important, which is actually just uh, contacts and, and networks and relationships. Uh, and so, like any CEO who comes into a new company, you can't fire two thousand people and, and expect to bring in two thousand who could get the thing running again perfectly. So, I suppose really uh, watching what's going on, you know, and analysing what's going on from the sidelines and out of those uh, areas uh, of conflict, it, it does really make you think about tackling the issue of mercenaries and how to, as you say, um, not just legalise it, but control it, if it can be. I mean, it seems that the largest number of mercenaries are ex-military personnel themselves that haven't found their place in society after they've left the forces. 
and they are a gun for hire. So is it not a combination of trying to tackle the problem at source, which is what do you do with ex-military or ex-military trained personnel looking for a career after they've left the forces? Yeah, I mean, I think certainly that's the that's been the traditional profile of of, uh, of of mercenaries, and we have to be very specific about the language that we're using here. You mentioned you'd come back to me on the legality of yeah. of, of the, the situation here. So what we have to understand is that mercenary has a specific international legal definition. It's a very difficult definition to 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 meet, and it's essentially just if I can summarize it is somebody who has been recruited specifically to participate in an armed conflict and that they did directly participate in an armed conflict now that's where we get into um difficulties different states take different views about what it means to directly participate in a in a hostility so you will see some that will say um you mentioned some uh, some uh, uh, American companies earlier, for example, um and you 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 put them under the 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 mercenary label. Others would say, and America, the u s would say they're not mercenaries. They did not directly participate in the hostilities. They weren't actually fighting. So we have to be really careful about the the language that we that we use here um because there are specific um there is a specific regulatory framework that um does in fact criminalize the recruitment, the training, the financing. And, and the use of mercenaries. But to come back to your point about who the who mercenaries are, um, the working group um, is, 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 is about to um, finalise a report on um, recruitment um, practices, because while, yes, the, the traditional profile of, 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 a, of a mercenary is somebody who is an ex, ex-military um, uh, personnel, retired military person, and who's been, been trained and has combat experience, and, of course, that's why they're, they're used... Um, um, and sought after as, as mercenaries. One of the problems that we're, we've, we've seen in recent years is a phenomenon called, um, we call predatory recruitment, where we are seeing people who are being taken advantage of because they, are, they come from a, a conflict-affected country. So, for example, Syria, we've seen this happen, um, and where um, they are being, in some cases, coerced or um, uh, put under pressure to become mercenaries, or they're they're actually fraudulently recruited as as mercenaries and promised nationality on large sums of money, which never materialise. We've also seen in the in the in in the the Russian context very recently, where um, individuals were recruited from um, prisons um, to fight for the the Wagner Group in in Ukraine. Now, while some of them. Uh, did in fact uh, volunteer to do that. Others, still others, were um, were pressurised or 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 put under uh, duress to to become to become mercenaries. The, and so there's the, a whole new layer of, of 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 problem there that these people are themselves becoming victims yeah. in some circumstances. I mean, there are layers, and, you, and you've and you've totally sort of sorted it out. It is very difficult, as you say, the terminology. But for the sake of uh, the, the time we have, obviously, we're we're going to use mercenaries as a generic term. Uh, Sean, can I just come back to you because um, Sorka did mention uh, Syria. I mean, the reward the rewards for mercenaries are large, uh, and with a conflict, you know, salaries can be you know several fold more than you would get perhaps on the on the domestic market. The way that armed mercenaries, if we just use that term for now, are used is different in the different contexts. If we look at Syria, for example, we know that mercenaries were used, you might say, to get rid of ISIL and to protect uh, oil reserves. And in doing so, 
the mercenaries that have a loyalty to a certain state or a country find that companies from that state or country actually get contracts. There is a, a, a subliminal aim here, isn't there? Yes, there's a quid pro quo. I mean, I think looking at the, ex the, looking at the extractive industry and mercenary development, there's a twin story to be seen here. Not all extractive industry, of course, but um, I mean, Prigozhin's own model is, you know, he is in Mali, he's in Syria, he's doing mines. So what happens is he goes to a government like Mali, he'll say, look, I can coup-proof you. <clears throat> I have the Wagner Group, and I also have the Internet Research Agency, the Troll Factor, which he also owns, to do disinformation, cyber. And in exchange, I want to, you know, mine for gold or oil or, you know, or whatnot. And we've seen this model work for him uh, across Syria and across Africa. And if he wanted to, he could keep that maybe moving. Um, but as, uh, as one of my colleagues just said, we, it's really hard to get inside the minds of Putin and, and Prigozhin. But yes, there is something to be said about, um, you know, wealth, money and firepower. Yeah, the quid pro quo thing is interesting because, John, can I come to you in Washington, D.C.? It's sometimes even simpler than that, isn't it? For example, in Nigeria, uh, under the radar, the authorities there, so we believe, uh, also brought in mercenaries to try and f push out Boko Haram. I mean, what was your understanding of what was going on there? Well, I, just to go back to one thing that uh, Mr. McFate said, which I think is interesting, is that um, it, it is a model, uh, the, the, the kind of exchange of security provision for concession rights to natural resources. Um, but even that, that's also not a, uh, a model that's unique to Wagner. And uh, often for African governments, uh, the, the there's a correlation but not necessarily causation that uh, in places where there are natural resources uh there there are conflicts and governments uh of those countries tend to be cash strapped they don't have a lot of cash on hand and so for them uh the easier thing to do as well to take advantage is to give away concessions that they don't necessarily control and uh they don't have to give away any any cash out of pocket and so th these deals also do work to the interest of the african governments who are looking for uh security provision uh as to uh nigeria i think you know one, one of the things that we forget about wagner is uh that it's just it's very uh standard for apmc to be operating in africa that is where the demand is for a private military company, and Wagner is no exception. And so, I think we sometimes put the cart before the horse when, when we're surprised that they that they're seeking clients in, in places where there's conflict, because uh, peaceful countries are not very good business for a PMC. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, moreover, uh, outsourcing, as I think Mr. McFay can explain with his own experience, uh, to contractors in Africa is, is pretty standard, because unfortunately. Uh, Africa, for, for a lot of the major countries, uh, such as the U.S. and Russia, is not a major priority. And so they don't want to put their own troops on the ground and would prefer to outsource the contractors if they can. OK, th that's the harsh reality, uh, you might say, what's going on on the ground. So can I just come in here with you? Because obviously, you know, uh, the UN is, is watching what's going on. The EU has also 
uh, made a statement what last September. I'm just going to bring in um, what they said to the Human Rights Commission in Geneva as HRC 51 on the 20th of September. However, the roles and actions of mercenaries, a category specifically defined in international law, should not be confused with the activities of private military and private security companies, uh, the use of which is lawful in certain circumstances. They go on to say the report recommends that states adopt legislation aimed at regulating the activities of private military and security companies. It's something we've just touched on in the early part of our conversation. Let's not dwell on it too much, but it is fraught with problems, isn't it? Even if it is approved by different member states in different ways. Absolutely, and I think you're quoting from uh, from my presentation to the Human Rights Council uh, last last September, yeah. um, and that's that, that was a report on on the problems of because um, we're the UN Working Group. You know, we don't work for the UN; we're independent human rights experts, and so we 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 approach this very much from a human rights perspective. And so that report that we presented last year was. Um, about the lack of um, accountability and access to justice for, for, for victims of, of mercenaries and indeed private military and security companies. But at the moment, there is, a, there is a regulatory gap. So as I mentioned earlier, we do have a very clear framework that uh, criminalises the recruitment, the training, the use um, uh, and the financing of mercenaries within a very specific uh, definition. But then we have these other actors which are not legally defined in private military companies, private military and security companies, private security providers. There is a soft law framework for them, but there isn't an internationally uh, an international binding instrument. Mm. And the international community um, has been meeting over many, many years. And I've been part of that process. And they have been unable to reach um, an agreement on whether there should, in fact, be a binding instrument um, to address the, particularly the human rights um, uh, elements of um, or the problems associated with these kinds of actors, because it actually doesn't, in a, in a way, it doesn't matter what you what you call these actors. If you commit human rights violations, you commit human rights violations. If you commit war crimes or crimes against humanity, which is what we've been seeing with the the, the Wagner Group in Car in in Mali, it doesn't matter. It actually doesn't matter. They can the individuals can still be held criminally responsible under international law for those for those crimes. As and but when the problem is yeah, because as and when they happen, as and when they happen, I just want to jump in because I just want to move it on slightly yeah. because there are scenarios that are being discussed internationally about whether again, mercenaries or armed uh, groups can actually aid governments in, in certain scenarios. Let's just go to Pakistan, for example. Sean, just want to get your opinion on something. We've seen over the years that the polio vaccination scheme that's been tried and tested uh, in the northwest of the country has often come under attack by individuals who don't trust it. The state itself can't seem to protect health workers. As one example, this is where NGOs are saying our own armed groups could possibly protect the health workers who are there to do a civic service. This is the grey area, isn't it, of what is a mercenary and what isn't and how they are paid. That's right. So I think that um, it's a moral calculus issue. And, and you can almost see in the future, I mean, what we, see, what we saw with Wagner over the weekend, this is not the end of it. And also, mercenaries or armed groups, we're going to call them, they're like fire. They can either burn down your house, but they can power a steam engine. So you can imagine how maybe even in the future, an NGO 
might hire a mercenary group to intervene and stop ISIL 2.0. So um, a lot of good and a lot of bad can come out of mercenary. It's not just pure bad. OK, so, uh, John, let me bring you in here. Different type of mercenary, those protecting oil tankers and shipping in, in places like the Straits of Malacca in Asia-Pacific, uh, the Gulf of Guinea, West Africa, or even in the Gulf of Aden in, in the Middle East. Some of those, we've seen oil tankers hijacked before, but now we're seeing a scenario where there are armed men who have been brought in by companies to protect those sorts of vessels. Uh, th there is a, a justifiable reason sometimes to have such mercenaries on board in, in those locations and on those uh, vessels? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think, as uh, as Sean uh, was saying, it's it's a very complicated issue, and ultimately it, it comes down to um, uh, one's own take on, on the morality and, and defining what is the greater good. Um, everybody's able to frame uh, their, their specific interests as some sort of exception. Uh, uh, necessary exception uh, to the rule that should apply to others. Um, I think, uh, interestingly enough, I, the Wagner Group developed out of a lot of the private security that that was uh, occurring in shipping lanes, uh, especially during the Somali piracy crisis. And I think whether we like it or not, there's a, there's going to be a demand for that. Um, and, and that's one thing that I don't think we've addressed is is the the demand side uh, and not the necessarily the supply side. I mean, ultimately. Uh, mercenaries are a product of conflict. Uh, they, they're a symptom uh, of an illness. They're not the illness uh, the, itself. Um, and uh, Wagner Group, I think, has come about as well at, at a particularly interesting time where we're seeing okay. a sort of existential crisis in peacekeeping, specifically in Africa, where uh, citizens have seen decades of UN peacekeeping missions that, that have failed to protect civilians, and, and in a lot of cases, uh, intervention after UN interventions, the situation has become worse. Okay. And so there, there is a demand for, for military solutions. If there, if there is that demand, let me come back to Sorka very quickly, because obviously, you know, you, we talked just a moment, a little while ago, about the sort of legality uh, of such groups. Uh, and in some countries, they're not allowed. In some countries, they are. The US, for example, has the largest number of security uh, companies that seem to work internationally uh, from our research. And even uh, within the Constitution, uh, under Article 1, Section 8, uh, Individuals or groups are allowed to authorise the hire of privateers, as, the, as they call it. Uh, and, of course, constitution written, you know, a couple of hundred years ago. Uh, but while you look at the EU and your, and your appeal to the EU was to try and regulate the issue of mercenaries, should it not be also pushed towards North America? Well, from the UN Working Group's perspective, our, our, our uh, call for regulation is, is truly international. It's not we don't we're not picking on any one particular country. We we think the international community should be regulating um, the, the the use of mercenaries, the use of private military and security contractors, um, and regulating the services that they they provide, and that um, they should be. Um, because you know we can't. We, they're, they're not going to disappear. This is this is the unfortunate reality when it comes to the the sorts of actors that are perhaps not not providing combat services. We can't. You know, they're not going to to disappear. But but as I said, there is international regulation that 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 prohibits the use of mercenaries in armed conflicts. 
But when it comes to the other sorts of activities and the other sorts of services that they're providing, we do see um, regulatory gaps. And, and that's usually problematic. And all states, no matter where they are in the world, should be addressing this as a matter of urgency. And there, sadly, we have to leave uh, the conversation that we've had, but I really would like to thank all of my guests there, Sean McFate, Sorka McLeod and John Lackner. Thanks so much for joining us on this edition of Inside Story. This episode was produced by Mohamed El Aishi, Alex Baird, Fungi Nyun and Jimmy Getterham. Studio sound was by Yasser Rahmani. The programme was edited by Anir Bansaka, Khalid Sultan and Joe DeFries. Be sure to subscribe to the Inside Story podcast to catch every edition. Thank you for listening. Tune in on Wednesday for our next episode.